Well, would you uh, take the Word of God this evening with me and turn in your Bibles in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 22. Exodus and uh, chapter 22. We're going to pick it, all, uh, pick it up where we left off last time. We have been uh, studying through the judgments of God. Uh, we read about the ordinances of God the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. When we read about the judgments of the Lord, we are referring specifically to the truths and the principles that those who would stand as the judges or as the rulers in the nation of Israel would be required to abide by when they carried out their judgments and their sentences whether somebody was innocent or guilty of transgressing the judgments of the Lord. And so those often we find specific scenarios that are given to show if this case comes about, here is how you ought to judge this case. Here is how a man is found innocent and here is how a man is found guilty. And not only are the judgments given us scenarios, but it also gives us the consequences of violating the judgments of God. And we might say that all of the judgments that we find in the book of Exodus are rooted in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments give us ten uh, commandments, but those under each one of those commandments uh, stands a family of judgments. In other words, all of the judgments fit under one of those, in, uh, in one of those categories. Let me give you an example as we study the judgments this evening. In this study, in the next section, we're going to talk here about uh, oppression, afflicting your neighbor, vexing your neighbor, oppressing your neighbor. Uh, you say, well, where does that fall? What category does that fall under? And that falls under the category of thou shalt not kill. Uh, because the heart of the commandment, the spirit of the commandment is not to hate your brother. Now, the fullest extent of that, when it is carried out, ends up in you murdering another man, taking that life in your own hands. But hatred makes you a violator of the same commandments, according to Jesus Christ, when he taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And so whether it is hatred in the heart, or oppressing your neighbor, or killing your neighbor, all of those fall under that commandment. And so the Ten Commandments give us the family of sins that we discover and the judgments that we read about would fall under those categories. Now we're going to continue in our study and we're going to look at a specific section here. And the Lord brings out something through Moses as Moses is going to relay that to the people. Um, he's going to give them some things to think about before they would dare to oppress their neighbor. And so notice Exodus chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 21. Exodus 22, verse 21. We're going to read down to verse 27. So Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. And the word of God says, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. 
If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by what um, by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only, it is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. We read here in this section uh, not only about what they are not to do, but the reasons why they're not to do them. We read about the words such as vexing your neighbor, oppressing your neighbor, afflicting the widow, the widow and the fatherless, and directly attached to those judgments are the consequences. It is interesting, though, that this stands a little different in the sense that uh, the judgments here are, ought to be, if violated, ought to be uh, measured by the judges in the land. But in this particular case, it is interesting to see that God says, I will be the personal avenger of those who violate this judgment. In the sense that uh, they may never get caught for this, but God will be sure that consequences will be severe to those who oppress their neighbor. I want to preach this evening on the oppressor and the judgment that follows. The oppressor and the judgment that follows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. And as we continue in the series through Exodus, specifically paying attention to the judgments. Lord, help us once again to consider your character and your holiness as they are communicated through those judgments. That although we do not operate today under a theocracy, but we operate as the church of the living God, that you would help us to see how those same truths still apply to us today and how we are, are to behave towards our fellow man whether they are believers or unbelievers. So, Lord, help us to learn some things from your word this evening, that by your Spirit we would ask us the sobering question uh, to see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Uh, we know that broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. And so, Lord, help us to walk the narrow path because we are redeemed people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin here in our study of uh, this judgment and the section from verse 21 down to verse 27, I would all fit under this, this category of the oppressor. Because whether it is oppressing the stranger or oppressing the widow or the fatherless or, in this case, the poor. Notice there are... Um, uh, he deals with how you treat or what is your attitude towards those different groups of people. And so there are strangers in verse 21. He mentions in verse 22 the widow and the fatherless. But then in verse 25, he mentions the poor. 
And the potential here is that the children of Israel in their behavior towards one of those groups of people might be found as oppressors. In the case of a stranger, it might be violence towards him. In the case of the widow and the fatherless, it might be uh, the demeaning of those groups of people. But in the case of the poor, it might be taking advantage of him through usury. But in all the cases, we could say that this is oppression. It is manifested in different forms. You can oppress in many different ways. And here he gives this and he deals with the oppressor and the judgment that follows the one who oppresses. There are three words that he uses here, uh, namely in verse 21 and 22. He mentions first of all in verse 21, notice, thou shalt neither vex a stranger. Now what does that word vex mean? Uh, The word vex uh, at its root means someone describes someone who is raging or someone who becomes violent. Uh, it, It means to suppress, to destroy to oppress, literally it means to do violence. Now, as I've mentioned through this series, I think that we have to understand that violence is, um, the subject of violence is much broader than the act itself of striking another man. I mentioned this morning that even in the book of James, he says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And Uh, You can oppress with your tongue. And so what I want us to do here is not just to limit ourselves in our understanding of those judgments as, uh, well, that's the letter and I'm not guilty of violating this letter, but uh, what about the spirit of this commandment? What, What is it that God reviles among His people? And I think we find an indication of that at the end of verse 27 when the Bible says, And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me, that's the poor, that's been taken advantage of, that I will hear, God says, I will hear, for I am gracious. And here God puts himself in contrast with the oppressor. And one of the reasons why God reviles the oppressor is because he himself is a gracious God. And so he lays it out. He says, you should not vex a, a stranger, do him violence or suppress him or attempt to destroy him. Uh, he also mentions in verse 21 the word nor oppress him. The word oppress here uh, means, the, the word literally means it's a picture. It means to press down. Uh, it is a description of someone who causes another person distress. It means to afflict to crush, to force someone under your rule, under your oppression. In verse 22, then, he mentions the word afflict. So we have vex, oppress, and then afflict. And the word afflict literally means to look down upon. It means to, uh, and here specifically, he mentions in verse 22, the widow and the fatherless. And so, uh, to the widow and the fatherless, the potential here is not necessarily that they might become violent towards such groups of people, but that they might look down on them and afflict them and mistreat them. It means, the word afflict literally means to abuse, to deal harshly with someone, or to bring them, to bring someone who is weak to a further position of weakness instead of. Encouraging, strengthening them, those who are already weak. 
And so you have those words which communicate the spirit of those judgments that we find here. And those concern the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and the poor. Now, the poor, I think we understand who that, the, the group he's referring to. The fatherless, I think we understand who that is. It's a child without a father. The father at that time was the one who would be caring for his family. It might be peradventure that this man is killed and maybe he doesn't have a family to take care of his wife and to take care of, of the, the other children. And so he finds himself fatherless. And the widow, well, the widow, that's evident. Uh, it goes along with the fatherless. She loses her husband, maybe leaves behind a child. And at that time, because of the economy... That's why you had the rule such as a kinsman redeemer. How do you take care of a widow and of uh, a fatherless children? And so there were things that were implemented. We'll see later in the judgments and some of the things that the children of Israel were to carry out to make sure that the poor were taken care of. Specifically a woman who lost her husband and who did not have the industry that her husband had nor was able to carry out the family business as her husband did. And so there was ways that they could be cared for, but it might be that someone might take advantage of that situation for their own profit. But what about the stranger? Who is the stranger? Well, the stranger, as we understand it in its biblical definition in the Old Testament, is anybody that's not a child, uh, is not one of the children of Israel. He's not part of uh, the nation of Israel. So a stranger would be an Egyptian who comes through the land. A stranger could be a Canaanite or a Philistine. Anybody who is not an Israelite is a stranger. Now as we begin here... I would like to make this point, and I think that's the first thing that came to my mind as we read these judgments, and because I think we might be aware here that those who do not discern the Scriptures might find it to be contra a contradiction that the Lord, when the children of Israel get to the Promised Land, that the Lord would command the children of Israel not to oppress the strangers... Yet, he gave them a mandate to conquer the promised land. So, how do you reconcile both of those together? Uh, how do you answer such an inquiry? Well, we have to make a distinction always between the personal conduct of men and the children of Israel who had a national mandate. You see, while the, while the nation of Israel was commanded to take the land and also to drive out the inhabitants of the land, the individual Israelites could not use that national mandate as a justification to oppress the strangers. You see, this distinction is made throughout the scriptures and we have to be consistent about it. Now, if you hold your place here, let me show you uh, one of the examples. For example, in the New Testament. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. So, in Romans chapter 12, he uh, obviously here addresses believers in the church at Rome. And he instructs the believers in Rome how they ought to behave, how they ought to respond towards other individuals who are outside of the church. Those who are unbelievers. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. He says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now all men, does that mean just believers or does that mean all men? Believers and unbelievers, does it not? 
Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So that is the Apostle Paul addressing the believers in Rome on an individual basis. And he says, you have no right to avenge yourself. You, you have an enemy, don't avenge yourself. Uh, don't give evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. That is a personal, uh, personal command for believers. Now you go to chapter 13 of Romans and notice what he says in verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, he is writing to the believers at Rome who are under Roman rule, Roman government. Roman government was not righteous governance. And he tells them, yet they are to be subject to the higher powers. And here's what he says in, in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, the higher power, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So do you see in both of those passages we have a, a distinction, do we not? The individual believer is not to avenge himself. But the higher power is given authority by God for revenge. To, and here, here's the revenge. To punish the evildoer. Reward those that do good. Punish those that do evil. And when we come back to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, it was the same for the nation of Israel. They had a national mandate. Drive out the inhabitants of the land. That was the national mandate that they had. Occupy the promised land. Drive them out. Kill them. That is a national mandate. But individually speaking, the children of Israel had no authority on their own selves. If they saw a stranger walk through their land, to take it upon themselves to say, well, since we have a mandate nationally to oppress, I'm going to take it upon myself to oppress the stranger. Do we understand the distinction between the two? I, I hope we do tonight. There is a distinction, but often here would be the justification for the children of Israel. Well, we have a national mandate to drive out the strangers. So therefore, I am justified and oppressing the stranger. And that was not justification. So, that's how we answer those inquiries about, well, what do you mean? God says, do not oppress the stranger, those who are not Israelites. But yet at the same time, God commanded the nation to occupy the land and to drive out the inhabitants to kill those in the city specifically. And so we, we see that. And so the, the difference there is one is God uses a nation to exercise judgment. By the way, part of that is the nations that were in the promised land 
God's wrath in a times previously, his wrath was not full. They were carrying out the children of Israel, the judgment of God upon those nations, those pagan and idolatrous nations. But it was not a personal mandate. There's a distinction between the two. And by the way, so it is for us today as believers. In other words, if you, for example, uh, act in your capacity, let's say you are a judge in the nation, or you are, let's say, a peace officer, a police officer today, and you in the line of duty kill someone, uh, that is not you avenging yourself, uh, but you are the hand of the higher power. And under that, you have authority. That's why when soldiers go to war, they themselves are not held responsible for the killing of, let's say, even an innocent person. The state, the nation, is that entity that carries that out. And we have to make a distinction. We do not take things on ourselves personally to avenge ourselves or to oppress. And so we make the distinction between the two. Now, as we go back to Exodus chapter 22... I want us to see here why uh, this, this judgment is important, how Moses, by as God's spokesman concerning those judgments, is going to present his case of oppression, and why it is so important that the children of Israel do not oppress their neighbor, whether it is a stranger, whether it is a widow, a fatherless, or whether it is a poor. Here's the first thing we learn, is that... The, uh, that they were confronted with the reality of natural impulse. They were confronted with the reality of natural impulse. Notice he says in verse 21, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him. You see, the children of Israel would enter into the promised land and they were conquer it, they would conquer it, the promised land, by the power of God. You remember, God says, I'm giving you the land. And you're going to conquer that land because of my power. Not because of your ability. Not because you are great in number. But by my power. And he made that evident when they first entered into the promised land and the walls of Jericho came down. They did not raise a sword and uh, fight the enemy. God, by his power, made the walls come down. God wrought a great victory for the nation of Israel. And so, the children of Israel, when they would enter into the land of promise, they would conquer it by the power of God. Those through whom God's power is demonstrated, then I think we know, may tend to think that such power belongs to them. Well, God has wrought great victory over our enemy but then the potential might be, look at what we can do. Oh, no, no, no. That's the hand of God. Uh, that's the judgment of God. We are not gods, but it might be the tendency for the children of Israel when they enter into the promised land to think themselves uh, having the authority by natural impulse to say, well, I can vex and I can oppress and I can afflict because look at how God has used us. This uh, judgment is found, it's interesting, repeated in connection to this time and time again throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament. Let's look at Exodus 23 in the very next chapter. Exodus 23, verse 9. Also, thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. 
it's interesting how he puts it that way. He says, uh, you're not going to oppress the stranger. Why? Because you know the heart of a stranger. You know what it's like to be a stranger. You know what it's like to be oppressed. You've been there. Uh, turn with me to the book of Leviticus in Leviticus chapter 19. He repeats it again, Leviticus 19, and notice verse 23, or uh, 33, excuse me. He says this, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, why is he saying that repeatedly? He says it again. Uh, let me give you another, a few other references to show the emphasis there. Uh, go to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10. Deuteronomy in chapter 10. And uh, notice with me verse 18 and 19. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse... Let's begin in verse 17. For the Lord your God is... God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger, that's God, loveth the stranger, in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Again in Deuteronomy 23, he says, Thou shalt not abhor the Edomite, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian because thou wast a stranger in his land. Do you see what he's saying to them? You know what the Egyptians did to you? You better make sure that you don't do the same to them. In other words, it might be an occasion if a, a child, a, a, an Israelite might see an Egyptian walking through his land and say, hey, this is our land. And they oppressed us. And so I'm going to take it upon myself to oppress them. The children of Israel had no right to take it upon themselves to oppress an Edomite, an Egyptian, anyone who was a stranger in the land. And so they are confronted here with the, re the reality of natural impulse. Human natural impulse. You see, you find this, right, repeated. Almost the same thing. Don't do this because you know what it was like. You, you know what the heart of the stranger is. Uh, don't do this because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. Don't do, even do that to the Egyptian because you were there uh, just like he is now in your place. And so we find that repetition throughout the Old Testament time and time again. God repeats it. And so repetition, although uh, the key to remembrance, is not the key to obedience. What is necessary that they might do this? Well, while the repetition, while repetition is the key to remembrance, humility is the key to obedience. And here is where we capture, capture the spirit of this judgment. Don't think yourself better than the stranger. Don't thank yourself better than the stranger. On one occasion, remember in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Leviticus chapter 19, God declares to the children of Israel, you ought to love the stranger because I love the stranger. So the child 
the children of Israel living in the land were confronted with the reality of the natural impulse. Look what we've done. We've possessed the land. Here's what we've done. Look what we've done in our own power. God warned them of that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 11. Not to say with our own power we've done this. And then to begin to despise the stranger, to despise the widow, to despise the fatherless, to despise the poor, and to oppress them. So they were confronted with the reality of natural impulse. But also, if we go back to Exodus chapter 22, we see that they were encouraged to remember their former lot. They were encouraged to remember their former lot. If you notice here, uh, both in Exodus 22 and Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 23, every single time he mentions this judgment in repetition, he attaches with it um, an encouragement for the people to remember their former lot. You see, human nature is prone to forget its former state. That, that's human nature. <laughs> uh, we, we forget where we were. Uh, we forget where, what we've been saved from. We forget uh, the sins that we have been struggling with. And you see, those who have gone through difficult times are not guaranteed to show compassion when others go through similar difficult times. You see, sometimes we say, well, um, when you go through it, you, you, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll understand. And uh, that's not always true. They had been strangers. And here God says, remember your former lot. Remember how you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. Remember how you were oppressed. Remember how you were afflicted. Remember how you had to serve with rigor. You remember that? Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. That it's not that far out here as he re recalls the judgment, but he tells them right off the bat here, uh, remember, don't forget. And so just because they had been in that position does not automatically give them a heart of compassion. It's amazing how the heart can become so hardened to the people who've been in a state where you've, where you've been before. And that's where he confronts them and encourages them to remember their former lot. You see, they were not to forget where they came from. Uh, by the way, let's go back to Exodus chapter, chapter 1, where they came from. Because it's interesting that the words that he uses here in Exodus 22 are the same words that are used in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 concerning what they dealt with as strangers in the land of Egypt. Go back with me in Exodus chapter 1 and notice with me in uh, verse 11. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore, they did set over them tax masters to, here it is, afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. The word um, rigor here means with severity and cruelty. They made them to serve with rigor. Uh, the word literally means to break down and to break apart. And they made, verse uh, 14, and they made their lives 
bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field and all service wherein they made them serve with rigor. Go to chapter 2. Notice verse 23 at the end of the chapter. He says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. You know what that means when the Bible says that uh, God uh, heard their groanings? It's in contrast with the Egyptians who did not hear their groanings. Uh, When it says here uh, that God remembered the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them. You know what that means? That the Egyptians had no respect for the children of Israel. So go to Exodus chapter 22 when he says, don't don't afflict, don't oppress, don't vex the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the poor. He's saying, don't, he's basically saying this, don't be as the Egyptians were. Don't be towards someone else what the Egyptians were towards you. That is amazing that someone who went through that type of suffering could become the replacement of the oppressor. Don't become like them. That's what they had faced in that generation. And so, they were encouraged to remember their former lot. They were confronted with the reality of natural impulse. But... There's a third thing we find back in Exodus chapter 22 is that it is this, that they were, to, uh, they were encouraged to show restraint with their new power. They were encouraged to show restraint with their new power. He says, when God says, Thou shalt neither vex, nor oppress, nor afflict, He basically says, You have the power to vex. You have the power to oppress and afflict. That's your power. You have the power to do that. You're a free man. But you are encouraged to restrain this new power that you have. You didn't have it under the Egyptians, but you have it now. You were a stranger. Now you're no longer a stranger, but there might be strangers that are coming among you. And so you're going to have to do something that the Egyptians did not do. You're going to have to restrain your power. You see, just because you have the ability or the opportunity to do something, it is not a justification to do it. Just because you have the Ability and the opportunity to do something, it is not a justification to do it. Just because you can does not mean you should. And so they are encouraged to restrain their power. Uh, you remember the example when uh, um, Jesus was talking to Pilate. And uh, Jesus was not answering his questions directly. Uh, Pilate said, uh, don't you know that I have power to take your life? And you remember what Jesus' reply was to Pilate? He says, thou 
couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Now I want you to think about that. Just think about this for just a moment. Jesus says to Pilate, you have no power except it would be given unto you over me, but God gave you that power. Was Pilate just in his dealing with Jesus Christ? No, he was not. Did he have the power? He did. But just because he had the power did not mean he should. Just because you can does not mean you should. And today we have this mentality that we can adopt that says, well, uh, since I have the opportunity and since you know God has not stood in my way, therefore, because I have this authority, because I have this power, therefore, I'm going to do this. And so power and authority does not necessarily mean that you can do what you want to do and justify your behavior as a result. So they were encouraged to restrain their power. There's a fur further thought that he gives to them, and that is this, that they were to take account of the vulnerable. And whether it is a stranger, or whether it is a widow, or whether it is a fatherless or poor, those all fall under the category of vulnerability. That, that you, here is, there's, there's the case in this particular scenario, uh, back in Egypt, they were the vulnerable ones. They were the ones who were vexed. They were the ones who were afflicted. They were the ones who were uh, broken down. But now they stand above the stranger, above the fatherless, above the widow, above the poor. And he says, uh, you have to take account of the vulnerable. So this is what that means. It actually takes thought. You, you need to think. You see a stranger and you ought to think that's a vulnerable person. You see a widow, you think that's a, a vulnerable person. You, you see a fatherless, that's a vulnerable person. You see a poor, that's a vulnerable person. But human nature will take advantage of people's vulnerabilities. And so in the spirit of this judgment, he says, you have to take account of the vulnerable You have to take account, and why is that so important? It's so important for this reason. The people, Leviticus says to the people, the children of Israel, be ye holy, for I am holy. Isn't that what Leviticus says? By the way, for the believer today, 1 Peter tells us to the believer, be ye holy, for I am holy. Be merciful, for I am merciful. Forgive every man his, his, his debts, because your heavenly Father has forgiven you. And so, they are to take account of the vulnerable. Why? Because this is reflective of the character of God, is it not? He, he says in verse 27, God says, For I am gracious. That's who God is. He is gracious. By the way, he was gracious towards the children of Israel. Back in Exodus chapter 2, he says, I heard the groanings by reason of the taskmasters. So God was gracious. Uh, God remembered. God had respect unto them. And so God was gracious to those who were vulnerable in that situation. And God says here, in, in essence, uh, in this judgment, you, you want to be like me, 
then I tell you, you must take account of those who are vulnerable. And you must be gracious because I am gracious. You see, human nature sees a stranger and thinks, how can I take personal vengeance? He sees a widow and a fatherless and he thinks, how can I take advantage of these people? He sees a poor person and he says, now how can I make money off this poor person? It is not concern, it is not considering the person's vulnerability, but taking advantage of that person in their vulnerability, and that is so unlike God. It is so unlike God that he says you must take account of the vulnerable. But then he moves on by saying that they were to consider also the consequences of cruelty. As we see with all of those judgments, there are consequences. Those consequences actually are pretty severe here. As I mentioned, if you notice, look with me in uh, verse 23. If thou afflict them in any wise... Now, that's pretty broad, but that's pretty specific, pointing to the mind and to the heart of man. He says, in any way, if you oppress them, in any capacity. Now, to me, what I see, that because we who discern the scriptures and understand not just the letter of the judgment, but the spirit of the judgments, understand that it's not just an act, but it's also a mindset towards someone if thou afflict them in any wise, in any capacity, and by the way, it could be in two ways, that you afflict them if the fatherless comes, you can make him your slave, and that's taking advantage of the vulnerable. That's wrong. But also, uh, this fatherless comes to your house and asks for food, and you don't give it to him. That is also not caring for the vulnerable. So it could be seen in a, 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 an act towards a person or the refusal to do anything to him that knoweth to do good and to doeth not to him it is sin if someone is oppressed and you and your only interest is that their oppression might persist by you doing nothing that it is still oppression and so if thou afflict him in any wise and they cry at all unto me I will surely hear their cry and my wrath this is God says shall wax hot and I will kill you that's the first time we've seen this in the judgments correct uh, in the other judgments notice if um, if you take a man's life whether it was uh, premeditated or maybe careless that often the consequences is you'd stand before the judge and that person was to be stoned according to the judgment or according to the desire of the family maybe someone had smitten a, a woman and the child died and so the family then was to uh, in the courtroom carry out the judgment towards that person but here God says I will personally take it upon myself to kill you now that that should arrest our attention Again, when we find the Word of God, these things indicate to us 
sometimes we just focus on, well, man, that seems really severe of God to just to say I'm going to kill you. And we, we focus on the judgment that God says is going to carry out to the neglect of the spirit that God is trying to communicate and how he views oppression. That's how much God detests oppression. When he takes it upon himself, that if they cry to him, he will hear them and he will personally take it upon himself to kill you. That's what he says. Now, I'm not saying today that if you... This is a judgment to the nation of Israel. Okay? But it does not lessen the importance of this judgment. It shouldn't in our minds. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter um, <clears throat> chapter 5, uh, you have uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember? And uh, they, they lied to the church, to Peter, the apostles. They lied to God. Thou hast not lied unto me, but unto God, unto the Holy Ghost. You remember what happened to them? God killed them. We have that example there for us not because our understanding needs to be, okay, every time somebody does that, that's what God's going to do. No. We have that example in the scriptures so that we might know what God thinks about it. And how God thinks about it is how we ought to think about it. And we should not justify ourselves if we do something where God says, if you do this, I'm going to take personal vengeance that we should not say, well, I did it and nothing happened to me, so therefore, it's good. It's not. The only thing that is sufficient for us to know whether something is right or wrong is whether God has said it or not. Whether the consequences are personally carried out in our lives is irrelevant of whether that command is good or bad. And so... They were to consider the consequences of cruelty. He says, verse 24, I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Now, obviously, I think the direct application there is made to men. It seems obvious to me. That the tendency of those who would carry out the spirit of this judgment and violate the spirit of this judgment are mainly men oppressors vexers afflictors not saying that women can't do that I'm just saying that that's what seems to be the spirit of this judgment because God will personally kill those men and make their wives and their children widow and fatherless so here's what we learn here's the consequences the first thing he lays out is that the favor of the Lord will be upon those who are oppressed. That's the first thing he says. Do you see? He says um, at the end of verse 23, And they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. You know what that means? God says, I will be favorable towards them. I will be favorable towards the oppressed. You know what that means? That he's not going to be favorable towards the oppressor. So they don't have the favor of the Lord. That's the first judgment. By the way, we ought to desire the favor of the Lord. We ought to desire from the Lord that when we pray, that He hear us. The psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
We don't have the ear. We don't have the favor of the Lord. So first, they lose the favor of the Lord. That's the first part of the judgment. But then the second part is the anger of the Lord. They lose the favor of the Lord, but then they have the anger of the Lord upon them. So angry is God at the violation of this judgment that he personally takes it upon himself to kill the oppressor, as he says. Thirdly, the vengeance of the Lord. Notice, he hears the cry of the oppressed. His wrath waxes hot. He is angry. And he kills them, and so we see the vengeance of the Lord. God will carry out the vengeance. God says, this issue may never find merit in a courtroom before a judge, but I will be sure to avenge the oppressed. And fourthly, we see the reciprocation of cruelty. That's how he ends. That's God's judgment. You lose the favor of the Lord... You have the anger of the Lord upon you. God carries out a personal vengeance on you. And finally, there is a reciprocation of your cruelty upon your own family. That's what he says at the end of verse 24. And your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. So they were to consider the consequences of cruelty. It is interesting that as we think about this, we, we get to the... The, the uh, uh, major and the minor prophets and we find uh, the spirit of the age right before the captivity of the nation of Israel if you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah let's look at Jeremiah chapter 22 Jeremiah was called of God to prophesy to the nation of Israel Jeremiah 22 and um, notice with me let's begin reading in verse 1 here, here what was going on in Israel and God confronts them about this and so we're going to see that God is going to be a judge of those who are oppressors. Notice with me Jeremiah 22 verse 1. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sitteth upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by the gates, these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor. Well, there you go. And do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger. That means vexing him. The fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house kings sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if ye will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. There it is. That's exactly, he says, uh, uh, the nation of Israel, he says, you have to turn from violating this judgment that we find in Exodus chapter 22. And if you don't turn from that, what's going to happen to Judah is desolation. Now, desolation means war. What happens in war? The men die and leave women and children widow and fatherless. That's what happens in wars. And the enemy often takes the women and the children. Let me give you one more example in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Um, not chronologically, but uh, the last one we find in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. 
Malachi, you notice with me in chapter 3. And uh, notice with me verse 5. Malachi chapter 3 verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, and against the adulterer, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. So here's, here's what he says. What do we attribute? What do we attribute the idea that the children of Israel would oppress the fatherless and the widow and the stranger? He says at the end, there's the key. Those who act that way are people who do not fear God. They don't fear God. The reason why they behave that way and they become oppressors is because there is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, he mentions the same thing in Zechariah chapter 7. All that I'm trying to show us this evening is that God is very concerned with any act of vexation, affliction, and oppression towards people who are vulnerable. And if in any way we oppress, we will lose the favor of God. We will kindle the anger of the Lord, the vengeance of God, and often what the New Testament principle says is, you reap what you sow. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, I don't have time. That's all the time I will preach tonight. But in Exodus, then he deals with the poor. And basically he says, do not put usury upon the poor. Now, usury is basically if a poor person needs money and you give it to them and you charge them interest for the borrowed money. You're not doing something because you feel charitable. You are lending the poor man money which will only make him poorer. You are taking advantage of them. That's a form of oppression. And so oppression, again, has many manifestations. It could be violence towards the stranger. It could be the neglect or the despising of widow and orphans. And it could be the taking advantage of the poor. But what is that rooted in? It's rooted in two things. There is a lack of fear of God in our lives. And there is a spirit of despising your neighbor. Looking down upon your neighbor. Thinking yourself better than your neighbor. Forgetting that that's where you were. Or also where you could be. And so when we think about that judgment, it's important for us to think about not just the, the letter of that judgment, but to say, well, what is the spirit of this judgment? And how do we carry it out in our own lives? 